Section 7. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 7. Chapter 3. Continued. Mirabeau. Mirabeau, the chief of the practical men of the revolution, as the English language would render the most salient point in their political attitude, needs a very particular examination. His influence upon the early part of the revolution was so considerable, the effect of his death was so determinate and final, the speculation as to what might have happened had he survived is so fruitful, so entertaining and so common, and the positive effect of his attitude upon the development of the revolution after his death was so wide that to misunderstand Mirabeau is in a large measure to misunderstand the whole movement. And Mirabeau has unfortunately been ill, or superficially understood, by many among now three generations of historians. For a comprehension of this character is not a matter for research nor for accumulated historic detail, but rather a task for sympathy. Mirabeau was essentially an artist with the powers and the frailties which we properly associate with that term. That is, strong emotion appealed to him both internally and externally. He loved to enjoy it himself. He loved to create it in others. He studied, therefore, and was a master of the material by which such emotion may be created. He himself yielded to strong emotion and sought it where it might be found. It is foolish alike to belittle and to exaggerate this type of temperament. Upon it, or upon its admixture with other qualities, is based the music, the plastic art, and in a large measure the permanent literature of the world. This aptitude for the enjoyment and for the creation in others of emotion clothes intellectual work in a manner which makes it permanent. This is what we mean when we say that style is necessary to a book that a great civilization may partly be judged by its architecture, that, as Plato says, music may be moral or immoral, and so forth. The artist, though he is not at the root of human affairs, is a necessary and proper ally in their development. When I say that Mirabeau was an artist, I mean that, wherever his energies might have found play, he would have there desired to enjoy and to create enjoyment through some definite medium. This medium was in part literary, but much more largely oral expression. To be a tribune, that is, the voice of great numbers, to persuade, nay, to please by his very accents and the very rhythm of his sentences, these things occupied the man. But he also brought into his art that without which no great art can exist, mere intellect. He believed in the main principles, at least, which underlay the revolutionary movement, he understood them and was prepared to propagate them. But his power over men was not due to this conviction. His power over men was wholly that of the artist, and had he by some accident been engaged in maintaining the attack against democracy, he would have been nearly as famous as he became under the title of its defender. We must then always consider Mirabeau as an orator, though as an orator endowed with the fine and clear intelligence and with no small measure of reasoned faith. Much else remains to be said of him. He was a gentleman, 
that is he both enjoyed and suffered the consequences which attach to hereditary wealth and to the atmosphere that surrounds its expenditure on this account he being personally insufficiently provided with wealth he was forever in debt and regarded the sums necessary to his station in life and to his large opportunities as things due to him so to speak from society we are right when we may say he took bribes but wrong if we imagine that those bribes bound him as they would bind a man meaner in character or less lucky in his birth he stooped as gentlemen will to all manner of low intrigues to obtain the necessary and the wherewith that is money for his role but there was a driving power behind him bound up with his whole character which made it impossible for any such sums to control his diction or to make of such a man a mere advocate he was never that dirtiest of political phenomena the party man he would never have been had he been born a hundred years later and thrust into the nastiness of modern parliamentary life a parliamentary hand mirabeau had behind him a certain personal history which we must read in connection with his temperament he had travelled widely he knew englishmen and germans of the wealthier classes well the populace he knew ill even in his own country abroad he knew it not at all he had suffered from his father's dislike of him from the consequences of his own unbridled passions also not a little from mere accidental misfortune capable of prolonged and faithful attachment to some woman the opportunity for that attachment had never been afforded him until the last few months before his death capable of paying loyal and industrious service to some political system no political system had chosen him for its servant it is a fruitful matter of speculation to consider what he might have done for the french monarchy had fate put him early at court and given him some voice in the affairs of the french executive before the revolution broke out as it was the revolution provided him with his opportunity merely because it broke down old barriers and conventions and was destructive of the framework of the state in which he lived he was compelled to enter the revolution as something of a destroyer for by no other avenue could he be given his chance but by nature he detested destruction i mean since this phrase is somewhat vague he detested that spirit which will disendow a nation of certain permanent institutions serving definite ends without a clear scheme of how those institutions should be replaced by others to serve similar ends it was on this account that he was most genuinely and sincerely a defender of the monarchy a permanent institution serving the definite ends of national unity and the repression of tendencies to oligarchy in the state mirabeau had none of the revolutionary vision in mind he was prematurely aged for his mind had worked very rapidly over a very varied field of experiences the pure doctrine of democracy which was a religion to many of his contemporaries with all the consequences of a religion he had never thought of accepting but certain consequences of the proposed reform strongly appealed to him he loved to be rid of meaningless and dead barriers privileges which no longer corresponded to real social differences old traditions in the management of trade which no longer corresponded to the economic circumstances of his time and this is the pivotal point the fossils of an old religious creed which like nearly all his rank he simply took for granted to be dead 
for Mirabeau was utterly divorced from the Catholic Church. Much has been said and will be said in these pages concerning the religious quarrel which, though men hardly knew it at the time, cut right across the revolutionary effort and was destined to form the lasting line of cleavage in French life. There will be repeated again and again what has already been written, that a reconciliation between a Catholic Church and the reconstruction of democracy was, though men did not know it, the chief temporal business of the time, and the reader of these pages will be made well acquainted in them with the degradation to which religion had fallen among the cultivated of that generation. But in the case of Mirabeau, this absence of religion must be particularly insisted upon. It would no more have occurred to Mirabeau that the Catholic faith had a future than it could occur to us, let us say, an English politician of thirty years ago, that the Irish might become a wealthy community, or that an English government might, within its own lifetime, find itself embarrassed for money. I use this parallel for the sake of strengthening my contention, but it is indeed a weak parallel. No contemporary parallel in our strange and rapidly changing times corresponds to the fixed certitude which permeated the whole of the end of the eighteenth century that the Catholic faith was dead. Mirabeau had perhaps never engaged in his life in intimate conversations a single man who took the Catholic sacrament seriously or suffered a moment's anxiety upon the tenets of the creed. He knew indeed that certain women and a much smaller number of insignificant men wrapped themselves up in old practices of an odd superstitious kind. He knew that great dull areas of ignorant peasantry, in proportion to their poverty and isolation, repeated by rote the old formula of the faith. But of the faith as a living thing he could have no conception. He saw on the one hand a clerical institution, economic in character, providing places and revenues for men of his own rank. He met those men and never discovered them to have any religion at all. He saw, on the other hand, a proposed society in which such a fossil, unjust and meaningless, must relinquish its grip upon those large revenues. But the faith as a social force, as a thing able to revive, he could have no conception. It would have seemed to him a mere folly to suggest that future might contain the possibility of such a resurrection. The dissolution of the religious orders, which was largely his work, the civil constitution of the clergy which he presided over, were to him the most natural acts in the world. They were the mere sweeping away of a quantity of inorganic stuff which cumbered the modern state. He felt of them as we might feel of the purchase of waste spaces in our cities, or the confiscation of some bad landlord's property in them. The church served no kind of purpose. Not one who counted believed in it. It was defended only by people who enjoyed large revenues from the survival of what had once been, but was now no longer, a living social function. In everything of the revolution which he understood, Mirabeau was upon the side of caution. He was not oblivious to the conception of popular government. He was not even mistrustful of it, but he could not conceive of it save as acting through the established strength of the wealthier classes. Of military power he judged very largely through Prussian eyes, and in long and enthusiastic passages he described the Prussian army as invincible. 
Had he lived to see the military enthusiasm of the Republicans, he would utterly have distrusted it. He favored in his heart an aristocratic machinery of society, though not an aristocratic theory of the state. He was quite determined to preserve, as a living but diminished national organ, the traditional monarchy of France. He was curious upon a number of details which were present and close to his eyes, methods of voting, constitutional checks, commercial codes, and the rest of it. The little equilibriums of diplomacy interested him also, and the watching of men immediately under his eye in the Parliament. It was in the Parliament that his whole activity lay. It was there that he began to guide the revolution. It was his absence from the Parliament, after his death, that the revolution most feels in the summer of 1791. This very brief sketch does not present Mirabeau to the reader. He can only be properly presented in his speeches and in the more rhetorical of his documents. It is probable, as time proceeds, that his reputation in this department will grow. His constitutional ideas, based as they were upon foreign institutions, and especially upon the English of that time, were not applicable to his own people, and are now nearly forgotten. He was wrong upon English politics, as he was wrong upon the German armies, but he had art over men, and his personality endures and increases with time. The end of section seven.